Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia, at the Australian Open. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg. Currently worn by number 28, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. See them at Diadora.com. Today's guest grew up in Canberra, Australia. In 1993, got to 15 in the world. Semi the 1987 Australian Open, beating Boris Becker in the quarters. Semi the 93 US Open. He was Australia's Davis Cup captain in 2015. He is a broadcaster for Australia's major tournament coverage. Wally Masur is today's guest. How's your tournament been? Pretty good. I always enjoy the Australian Open and um, I still am involved with some players from time to time in the sense more of a mentor role, I guess. So, But hang on, you're here broadcast. I'm broadcasting, but that is one side of what I do, but I'm always keen to you know follow the Australian players, so it's nice to be here live. Now, do you get treated like royalty here? Um, no, I'm a pretty low-key sort of guy. I don't want to be treated like royalty. You don't get I, any, I walk uh, back to the hotel. You don't night. knuckle back champagnes and no. the, none of that. No, like, I'm buying a, every night when I'm finished my broadcast, I go into Garden Square and I buy a bolter. A beer that's on sale. You, you knock back a beer. I just have a, I sip a quiet beer before I walk home. Gentlemen, you hear former world number 15 in 1993. Three. Your best year. Um, one, considered one of the most fit players back in that generation. I want to learn all about that. Um, Australian Davis Cup stalwart, Davis Cup captain, correct? Yeah. Do I have that all right? Yeah, I had a year, yeah. And that's Wally Masur. Wally Masur. This has got to be a lot different than from when you played here. Well, I told someone the other day, because I started uh, my Australian Open in early 80s at Kuyong. Kuyong. So Kuyong was grass court centre. It was really a club, probably like um, the you know where the US Open used to be out there. At- Kuyong, yeah. Kuyong is a private tennis club to this day. That's yeah. a private club. Absolutely. And... The, the Very much like the West Side Tennis Club that Very we played so. for us. Yeah, exactly. And, and it had to grow, and it has obviously moving to this facility, and this facility has continued to grow. But we, um, the, the player area was a tent or a marquee that was set up in the car park of Kuyong, and it was sponsored by Marlboro, which is a cigarette company. So you'd be there having your lunch, and the Marlboro girls would come and offer you a cigarette at the Australian Open. Um, so, yeah, obviously were any very of the, different. Were any of the players smokers? Um, yeah, there was quite possibly. I'd say there was a few, yeah. Tyriac? Yeah, there was a few. A few of the Europeans, a few of the French probably had a cigarette with their lunch. Listen, this is terrific. This is What a thrill this is to be here at the Australian Open. Uh, the, the draws are in uh, complete disarray. We're going to get into that. But as you know, we do a five-set format. The first set's the off-the-court report. As you said, you, 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 you live in Sydney. Yeah, I live in Sydney. I grew up in Canberra, but I've lived in Sydney for 40-odd years. And so you come down. And you do the walk just like everybody else. You stay at the hotel and you do the walk. Yeah. And that's for Aussie Channel 9. So I am basically working for the host broadcast. Oh, right. Nine, you know, could pick up a potential match that we do, but we basically broadcast out to the world. So you, you're you doing the world feed. Yes. So it, so you're on ESPN Plus in the United States. I couldn't tell you where I show up. You don't to even be know. No. You don't even know. No. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. As I just mentioned, the draws are in full disarray. Um, what have you learned here this week? This is, well, by the time our listeners hear this, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be even more carnage. But um, 
what have we learned this week about the twenty what the twenty twenty three season might might become? Depth. Depth in both the men's and the women's. You know, people ask me who do I think would win? You know, this is prior to Novak picking up a little hamstring injury in Adelaide. I thought Novak was a slight favourite, as was Giontek, but you know, I didn't say that with a great deal of confidence. I reckon that the gap is closing. The the we saw last night, you know, Medvedev getting taken care of by young Seb Korda. Holgaroon's nineteen playing great tennis. You know, Sitsi Pass, some of those players that have threatened for a while to win slams are looking awfully dangerous. And I'm seeing that in the women too. I think the gap is closing. There might have been three or four players that could win slams a couple of years ago. Now I think there's fifteen. I've said the other day that it just seems like the athleticism ticks up every through the, year. Through the roof. Through, through the, the roof. roof. What I was surprised, I, you know, obviously I watch tennis and I commentate and sometimes I'm courtside. I had to interview Stefano Tsitsipas the other night. I got the shock of my life because when you look at him with no reference point on the court, you think 6162 because of the way he moves and he's got broad shoulders. He doesn't look like a string bean. Up close, He's a giant, 6'5", and he moves like a beast. He's like a tall 6'5". Yeah. His body is... Big frame. Yeah, huge frame. But he moves like he's 6'1". I, I feel like what we see now, like the way these... It doesn't it doesn't come across on television, but the, the way the players, men and women, can dig to the corners... And get take balls out, take you know, take balls that seem like they're being buried into the corners, and you know, and essentially hammer them back into the court is unbelievable. Well, I think too, you know, I, I would say the training has become very specific, and I know, you know, back in my day, the training was a bit more, uh, you know, long distance, a lot of running, a lot of endurance. Now it's all short, sharp intervals and very specific. And I have to think too when I see some players, you know, like even like uh, Roger and Rafa playing well into their thirties. The science behind the prehab, the rehab, and the training must be pretty damn good because they beat themselves up out on court, but they just keep going. You mentioned him. Uh, Rafa um, seems to be out of business. Um, what can you say about Rafa? Well, he's he's my favorite player. I just can't. I just you know he's the way he's gone about his business over the last two decades is, is phenomenal. Um, I just sort of really admire him. He has a real responsibility to the game. He puts in every time he steps out on court, but. Yes, I would have to say that Father Time is catching up with him. It's a litany of injuries, and they're different injuries. Um, I think yeah, physically he's a little beaten up. And look, I think too, you know, he's not the kind of guy that can have time off and just find his game quickly. You know, he needs a volume of practice and a volume of matches to play his best. And when you keep having these recurring injuries, that becomes difficult. And it was pretty apparent this summer that he has spent a bit of time in the offseason working on a more offensive game, but that's not really who rapper is necessarily so it's out of character and yes it's something to work towards but um i just wonder at 36 years of age if he can it felt like too he brought the he brought his wife the baby he had a full farewell tour you reckon well it felt it felt a little bit like that i don't i i don't think he will i don't i I think you would agree he won't he will not do that if he cannot compete no and why you know for a guy that's been that good holds the grand slam Record in terms of slams won, why would you want to be ranked 13, 15, 18? Why would you continue? Well, losing too. Like, if you're going to lose and be hurt, you know, he's not going to go through that. Yeah. Showed a bit of character, though, didn't he? Actually finished the match when he was cooked. 100%. Yeah. Um, Daniil Medvedev um, looked like uh, he looked like he lost that fire a little bit. Um, had have you learned anything about um, that loss last night and what, what's well, going on with him? I, you know, I probably focus a little more on Seb Korda, you know, just the way he took it on. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of players that take the ball on the rise and make things happen. Uh, Daniel is not that guy. <laughs> he plays deep in the court and he's a counter-puncher. An awfully good one and an awfully good competitor. But, you know, to me, when I looked at Alcaraz and what, what TFO Alcaraz and what Sinner did at the US Open, um, you know, I w- watched Seb Quarter last night. I'm watching Holgeroon. Big guys taking the ball on the rise, taking it to their opponents, pretty damn impressive. So for me, it's like, well, we, we got another contender in Seb Quarter. It looked like Seb, you know, and Seb Quarter served in Bali like four or five times on game points over and over and over. Um, really abusing that that distance that Medvedev Great puts play. between the, the What I liked about returns. Seb, I liked his game obviously and I I played tennis with his dad so I'm feeling rather old. But um what I liked about Seb was just his emotional state throughout. You know, there he was on the cusp of something great and he was cool as a cucumber. How'd you do with Peter? Uh I played Peter a few times. Um played doubles with him as well. We actually won a title together. Um I think I might have lost to him once or twice and beaten him once or twice. Remarkably talented player when he was playing well. Crazy ball striker. Just ridiculous. When he was when he was playing. And Seb has that. It's amazing, yeah, right? The yeah. genetics is interesting. Well, uh, Peter was on the – he was kind of on the red line. But when he was playing well, he made it look easy. But, you know, I guess there were days when he cut it a little too fine. But uh, an awfully, awfully good tennis player. Um, have you seen Lehechka? I saw him at the United Cup. I was impressed. You know, good competitor, great athlete. Um, and he's on a bit of a roll. He beat Cam Norrie um, in a in a electric match out here. Uh, you know, it seems now like these players are coming. They're that nobody's safe. Yeah, Every- no, no. I mean, absolutely. You know, and, and America's producing some really good young guns too, obviously. But um, I, I didn't know much about Lehechka. I had a chance to commentate one of his matches, and I'm like, wow, this guy's good. And I think too. You know, the opportunity to be in that United Cup, you know, surrounded by some really good players and to be in that environment, it does these guys the world of good and they have a good win representing their country and gives them a bit of confidence. How are you feeling about Australian tennis at the moment? I feel pretty good. You know, obviously it was disappointing that uh, Kyrgios couldn't play and Isla Tomlianovic couldn't play, so our two best players were out through injury and, you know, Ash walked away from the game this time last year. So that's that leaves a little bit of a hole at this year's Australian Open, but um, I think... In their absence, you've got Diminar stepping up, Alexi Poprin stepping up. Kokonakis probably should have found a way through against Andy Murray, couldn't quite do it. So, look, we we are not a big nation. Um, tennis is a very international game, but we've got some relevant players. What are you doing what, what are the conversations like you, Rochi, and uh, Leighton Hewitt? For our listeners, by the way, you know, these Davis Cup captains are out here. Sebastian Grosjean, the French captain. Leighton Hewitt and Tony Roach, they're at every single Australian player's match. They are ever-present all over the place. Uh, what are these guys talking about when they see Popper in, when they see... Well, I think, you know, Roach is obviously pretty old school. He's all about the hard work. Um, Leighton's probably looking at it more from a tactical point of view. What are they doing well? What are they not doing well? But if you want to be a team captain and a team coach you've got to have a relationship with your players and you've got to watch them play live dissect their matches talk to them about it and develop that relationship because if you're sitting next to them on court you better have a bit of a basis for relationships and you know the mutual respect so that you can get some uh get some results together what do you say about andy murray i love andy i you know i kind of can i can relate to his game you know some of the guys that play the way they play tennis i can't relate to it but i kind of get andy because he's pretty old school he's pretty linear 
Uh, you know, his serve is, is pretty old. School. Sorry, would you say linear? Yeah, just in his shot making. What does that mean? Well, you know, if you look at Rafa's forehand, low to high, you know, tremendous amount of top spin. You know, I can't relate to that, but I can relate to Andy. It's it's kind of simple. Linear. Yeah, he's he got linear swings, simple swings. You know, he takes the ball on the rise. Um, probably one thing that's frustrated me a bit with Andy over the years is I think he he never fully explored um, what he was capable of at the net. You know, I think he had more opportunity off his first serve and particularly off the backhand, the, even the backhand return to come in because he's a great volleyer. And the trick to volleying is knowing how to transition and moving at the net. And Andy absolutely got that. But he was conservative by nature. He was a counterpuncher by nature. But I can't argue with his career. Um, where, are you, where do you stand on this late night terrible situation? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because from a tournament's perspective, if you're going to have a session, you've got to have a couple of matches. You can't just have one match. Um, the problem, of course, is when the day session bleeds into the night. Do you have a curfew? Possibly. I think it's, it's maybe a good um, time for the – look, it, it's only happened twice in my memory, this 4 o'clock finish. Hewitt v. Baghdadis, and we've been here since 1988 with night sessions, and then this one, of course, with Andy. But maybe it's an opportunity for the players to get together and say, well, all right, what do we think is the optimum situation? Do we have a curfew like they do at Wimbledon? I think it's 11 o'clock, we're done. Uh, do we have a curfew and come back tomorrow, as you would with rain, for example, on an outside court? Or, or do we just accept that there will be some anomalies and we are playing tennis at 4 o'clock in the morning? Um, maybe the players can have a choice and a view and uh, you know have a big say in how that looks. We haven't really spoken about the women. Um, is there any players that you are excited about that you like to watch play tennis? Yeah, I think I'm one thing about the women's game, obviously Ash was pretty dominant um, and she was a great foil for the way a lot of the um, women play, you know, from deep in the court. But if we go back to the US Open and I'm waiting to see how it transpires here, you know, I thought there was a bunch of girls that were travelling really well and they kind of imploded on the big stage. When it, you know, Fagula was one, Carolyn Garcia was another, even Ange de Ber, to a degree, didn't play their best tennis when they needed it most. And I found that a bit frustrating because you, you got to, when you look at the champions... you got to step up! Yeah, you got to be better in the big matches and they weren't. So I'm kind of curious, and you know, even I felt Eager was not playing that well at the US Open, but she's a hell of a mover, she's a good fighter, and she's pretty intimidating, you know, with her movement and just a good court presence, and she got the job done. But, you know, you can be nervous for the first 15 minutes of a match. You can be nervous at the closing stages of a match if you're about to win, you know, and the expectation can cripple you, but you can't be nervous for the whole match and not find anything, and that's what I saw. So... I think, you know, can Sabalenka win? Yeah, Pagula can win. Can Carolyn Garcia get it right? Yeah, Benchic. I reckon there's a whole lot of girls that could get it right and win. But I didn't see that at the US Open. I only saw one girl do it, and that was Fiontek. So I'm keen to see how it plays out here. We've seen a lot of lopsided scores. We've seen a lot of substandard tennis. What are your feelings about it? Was it because of, like, the huge weather? Was it because of the huge weather uh, change and that rain delay? Does that just screw up some of these young kids to the point of no return, or is it just unacceptable? It's hard to say. I mean, Melbourne did throw up the first three days. It did throw up a few challenges. 36-degree uh, day. We had a, obviously, what, a three- or four-hour delay with the heat rule in effect. We had Then we had storms and rain and drizzle on and off, and, you know, the next day was terribly windy. So, look, but, but these are challenges that I guess as professionals you've got to navigate. Um, and... Look, I will say this, you know, sometimes in men's tennis, you, you can lose a bit of confidence. The conditions are not to your liking. You might get really heavy at night. You can't hit through it. But what men can do generally is hold their serve. 
So they can keep some scoreboard pressure on their opponent, even when they're not playing well. And sometimes when I watch a women's match and maybe one of the girls is not playing so well, they don't have the serve to give them maybe one or two free points a game to, to maintain that scoreboard pressure. And then things can get lopsided really quickly. So that would probably be my comment there. And it even pertains to nerves. Men get nervous, but they hang on to their serve, you know, and they're in a tie break and they might be, you, you can be choking, but you can still find free points on your serve and get to that four or five all situation and be competitive. And try to steal a set. Yeah, absolutely. Grind, you know, just hang in. With that said, um, you know, there's Sabalenka is in there and uh, some others, uh, like you said, Caro, um, some dangerous, dangerous players. Hopefully the tennis um, elevates over this back end. Yeah, you want to see the best tennis being played at the back end of the tournament. Sabalenka I like because you made a comment after Adelaide, you know, some days I have a bad serving day. Some days I lose my serve. But, you know, I've got game. I've got other parts of my game. So, A, she's admitting the problem. That's good. You know, you've got to be honest. And, B, it's like, but, hey, if it happens, I'm ready. So, I, you know, I kind of thought that was a pretty positive comment and she played well in Adelaide and she's going so far so good here. Are you a proponent of women's tennis? Do you keep your eye on it? I do. I have to in my role as a commentator, yes. But, um, look, I'll be honest with you, I mostly call men's matches. I've not called a women's match here. But at various other um, broadcast opportunities, I've called both. I'm a proponent of the slams. I'm a proponent of men's and women's tennis together under one umbrella. You like that? I like that. You want more of that? Well, it's been it's been the, the slams are the pillar of our sport. I don't know if we need more of it. I mean, Indian Wells and a few other events have gone to it. It's the pillar of our sport. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So it works. How are you feeling about the year's this year's tournament? Um, look, so far, so good. As I say, there was a few weather issues. I like the carnage, as you described it. I love it. Um, I, I would like to have 16 seeds. I don't like 32 seeds. You know, bring it on. You know, the, the whole idea of Rubleg playing team first round, Murray v. Berrettini. I know Murray's injured and his ranking's down there, but I, I want that kind of carnage in the first round, second rounds. I think it's good for the sport. And, it, and it's just such hot action out here that first week of this tournament. I tell everybody, you know, if you're not, even if you're not a tennis fan, come to the Slam the first week because – you will, you know, there will be a match out on court, you know, seven or eight, and you're close to the action, and it's two guys fighting for their lives, and you know, fans pick a player, and it's game on, and the players interact with the fans, and you know, that that gets pretty real pretty quickly. I like that. It's just, it's just the best drama, isn't it? Yeah, it's good, and and I do like five set tennis too. I'll be honest with you. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Now, do I have this right? You were born in England. Yeah, so my father is Austrian. My mother is Australian. They actually met in Australia, but they had moved back to Wait, Europe. Wait, did you say Austrian? Austrian. Austrian. Austrian, yeah. So he, Sorry, was, he was an immigrant. Uh, but they met here in Australia, and they moved back to Europe, and they were both working over there at the time. So I was kind of born there, but the idea was as soon as I was born, we were on a boat back home. Okay. And so how many passports do you have? I, I do have two. I have the British and the Australian. No Austrian? No, the Austrian one is a little tricky because if you have that, you have to give up every other. Oh, really? Yeah. That's different. That's a different one, yeah. So now, so you you, you grew up here yep. in Sydney? No, I grew up in Canberra. Oh, sorry, Canberra. So Nick Kyrgios Same territory. as Kyrgios. Yeah. And what's that like? I heard, I heard that's kind of like a like a hard scrabble town. Is that no, true? No, no. Incorrect. Canberra is uh, very, very middle class, very egalitarian. It's the seat of parliament. All the embassies from around the world are located there. Canberra's sneaky, sneaky good. 
It's a sneaky good spot. Yeah. And Kyrgios is from there. He's from there. Okay. And how'd you, now, how did, where does your tennis begin? My tennis began uh, pretty much where Nick played at the National Tennis at Lineham there. Um, they were loam courts, so, you know, the Australian equivalent of clay, sand. Uh, that's what I learned to play on. And look, I had a pretty... Hold on, but not that carpet that's out here. No, no, no. Sand that over... came later. Okay, okay. I, I never played on that. I played on sand and grass. Sand. Well, it's called loam. And it's, loam. It's our, it's our local crushed stone that creates that court. Very, very slippery. Very slippery. Um, so I was very lucky because I, I had this weird situation where I was about eight years of age and my parents took me to have lessons with a guy by the name of Charlie Hollis who lived in a caravan with an extension cord plugged into the National Tennis Centre, which sounds rather grand, but it wasn't. Um, and Charlie had coached Rod Laver. He gets a whole chapter in Rod Laver's book. And he coached Mark Edmondson, among others, as the last male to win the Australian Open. And, did, did and he, he was an amazing coach. And he groomed your strokes? From eight, age eight, the first lesson I had, to 18 when I kind of hit the road and started playing. Charlie was my one and only coach. Eight to eighteen, when you hit the road, and so now were you? Uh, were you? Uh, a, 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 were you identified by? I was. I went on junior tours at sort of seventeen. Uh, Pat Cash was two years younger than me, but Cash and I travelled together. You know, in those early years, uh, we would go away on national teams. Um, but the federation wasn't quite as rich and wasn't quite as involved in those times. Because once you turn nineteen, off you go. You go play. You're on your own. But so you, you you grow up and you start traveling all around Australia just playing. Yeah. So I, I, went, I left, basically I played satellite circuits, which are kind of the equivalent now of, the, you know, those ITF 25 and 15,000s. So basically you played four weeks for satellite points to play one week for ATP points. And I played one of those and I was just with the boys, you know, Fitzy, Cashy, all the Aussie boys. And I just thought, how good is this? John, John Fitzgerald, Pat Cash, all the Australians. Yeah, we're all sort of on this tour together. You guys are all together. Yeah, we're buddies and we're, we're having a good time. You're still all together. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I saw Cashy the other day. Well, you know, I haven't seen him for a while, but, uh, you know, I've known him since he was 12. But we basically, uh, I, I, and, and I got an ATP point out of it. And I said to my mum, I said, you know, this, this is what I want to do. You know, this is it. I want to have a crack. And I left school and off I went. And you started getting, you left you left high school. High school, in year 11, which is the year before you finish. But to give you an indication... In the 11th grade, you quit school yeah, and, and I, you went to become a pro player. Yeah, so basically I was and, offered a college opportunity, but I didn't want to stay in school to do it. So what I did is I played a lot of tournaments in Australia in my 17th year, um, and then I turned 18 early the next year, and then I, I did go overseas for a period of time, and I did I did about three or four weeks of labouring. My father was a gyprock plasterer. And I did about three or four weeks of labouring um, to get a bit of money together, and off I went. And I, I, that was it. You know, I, I was just Wait, totally pl- into plaster. it. Plaster, yeah, sheet rock. You guys call it drywall rocking. Yeah, that's yeah. hard work, man. Well, he did the hard work. I did the labouring, but you know, he did that for thirty odd years. You know, I always respected my old have man. Forearms like uh, rocks. Well, he was. Um, it, it's a solid profession. It's working hard. Let me tell you. If it's sheet rocking, that's hard, hard work. Well, when you put the the sheets on the roof. That is hard. I mean, nailing the, to the battens on the roof, that is hard work. Now, what's the story with your fitness? Everyone says you're one of the fittest guys there ever was in tennis. Is that true? Um, Chris Lewis probably had me. Uh, you know, there, there's been some, Chris Lewis, yeah, the Kiwi. Oh, he was a freak. He was a freak. Really? Yeah. He, uh, well, what's the story? So, sorry, what's the story with your fitness? Well, basically, I, um, 
Yeah. And by the way, for our listeners, if you look at this guy, the guy is 59 years old. He doesn't have an ounce of fat on him. Are well, you still an animal in the gym? I still like, I've got a little gym at home. I still like to do things. But I obviously, as my career went on, I wasn't a player sort of blessed with power. So I kind of had to rely on hustle and scramble and, you know, a little bit of grit. Um, and I hired a, a, an ex-boxer to help me out when I was in my early 20s. And then I met up with a guy called Gavin Hopper, who was a, a, tr- a fitness trainer for an AFL club. And I don't know if you know the AFL football here, but it's pretty big, pretty big in Australia. For our listeners, Gavin Hopper at one time, um, he played uh, Aussie rules football, but he got involved in tennis. I didn't know it began with you, but, you know, he was with Mark Philippoussis. And he was with Amanda Kutzer, yeah. who got to three in the world when he was he was on her bag as the not just the trainer but the coach. Sorry, no, Gav, continue. Gav, no, Gav and Gav was Gav basically identified a few things in my game as a coach, and he identified a few things you know off the court just to take me to the next level. And um, look, I'm probably one of those guys that just I, I do really enjoy training, um, so I kind of soaked it up, and I got myself in pretty good shape. You know, probably between the ages of say, you know. 27 to about 31. Oh, really? I broke down a little bit in the end, but um, it helped me. You know, it helped me. Um, listen, you made some, you, you got to the back, to the second week of all the majors. You had a, you did very well in doubles. Uh, your best moment on tour? Um, yeah, well, you know, I made two slam semis, which doesn't sound like much, but obviously when when you're in the thick of it, it's not easy to do. Um, no, and, so you that, beat, and, and by the way, uh, you beat Boris Becker in the quarterfinals of Australian Open. That's yeah. a pretty good effort. Well, he was the reigning Wimbledon champion, I think, at the time. but um, And that was big because that was kind of a home slam win. And, you know, that was pretty special. I, I beat Noah Leconte one weekend in Davis Cup in Australia. Then it was like 40 degrees in Perth. Uh, that will, and, and I'd struggled in Davis Cup. I'd struggled to get over the anxiety of, you know, playing Davis Cup and representing my country. So when I beat those two guys, it was kind of like, and I beat them both in five, and it was hot, and it was a grind. And I sort of, um, I felt validated. I felt like everything had been worthwhile. Um, who, who were you in 1993 that you were able to be so good to get to to get into the top 20? But you know, it's kind 15? of funny because you know, when I was a kid, I was still my dad was still we were still going skiing when I was like 14 and 15. Um, you know, Canberra winters were cold. There were no indoor courts. You know, 12, 13, 14. I was only hitting a couple of times a week. It was sort of a bit of a slow burn for me. And at the same time, you know, you had Jimmy Arias at Bonaterres. The you know, guys were going full on professional, playing eight hours a day, yeah, and, and sleeping there. And it sounds kind of weird, but I had a bit of a slow burn. So when I look back upon my career, you know, the best year of my career was thirty. So there was certainly no accelerated development um, as a youngster. Put it that way. Could you have done better? Oh, in hindsight, um, I probably could have reached my peak earlier and, and maybe held on to it for a bit longer, but. Look, I wouldn't change anything in the end. You know, I started my career, you know, there was Borg and there was McEnroe playing and I got to play those guys. I played through the whole, uh, obviously, the Edberg, you know, Cashy was there, Boris Becker, and then, you know, I ended up playing Pete and Andre. So I had this really good span, you know, and things were getting more professional throughout the course of my career. And you would do things differently in hindsight, but would I change anything? No, that was my experience and I loved it. What's the difference then of being top 20 to top 10? Look, I think I would describe today's tennis players, they're just amazing hitters of the tennis ball. And I think the rackets and the technology, you you can pretty much hit a winner from anywhere. So a lot of them don't necessarily value the error because they can make so many winners to compensate that sometimes I think the art of tennis gets lost. The very best tennis players have the art, obviously. But, you know, I just consider back to some of the people I played when power, 
you know, it was difficult to come by and you kind of had to open the court up with like a series of moves. It was a bit more chess-like, if you like. Um, and it was a different game. You know, you, the shots that are available to the players of today were not available to the players of yesteryear with a small wooden racket. Just It's a different game. Can't compare it. So, you know... It's the, not apples but, to apples, is no, it? No, but the attributes to the top players and the attributes to the top players, you know, the, the discipline, the resilience, the character, the athleticism, they still apply, but it is a slightly different game. And I do really appreciate the modern game, but sometimes when I watch a match, I just scratch my head and go, you've got you to gotta value the percentages. You know, you've got to value the unforced area. You've got to value the ball in the court sometimes. Um, you know, we have a saying in Australia, Sydney or the bush, you know, like, you, you can't go wild. I was watching Dennis Shepovalov last night. I commentated his match, and the first two sets he was just so amped up, and he made he made like thirty six errors in two sets. And I'm like, Dennis, just bring it back a notch, you know? You can't win matches. He, and he, he got down two sets of love, and then he tidied it up, and then it was two sets all. But you know, then it's a sprint to the finish, and anything can happen in the fifth set. So sometimes I get a little bit frustrated. I think because you know, and and defending, you know, you've got to be able to defend in the modern game. You know, the, the big four in the men's game. They were the best defenders. It's a pretty important part of the game. So you can't you can't deny that either in the modern game. Power is king, but because power is king, you've got to be able to defend. So, you know, there's, there's some things I look at um, in the modern game that are super impressed with, but I still see some areas for improvement. You mentioned rackets. Um, you played with a racket that no one's ever heard of now, then, and forever, the Emre. That's right. What's the story with that well, racket? Well, it was a local, local manufacturer. Here. And, yeah, but I think everything was made in Taiwan. But basically, I grew up with wood. You know, I played with a Dunlop Maxfly. Um, got hold of some English Maxflies later on in my career. As a, but I, I was a bit conservative. I, I kept playing with wood when everyone was changing the graphite. I, and then I went from small-headed wood racket to those sort of um, mid-sized wood rackets. But finally, I made the like switch. Like the head V-last? Yeah, that's it. I went to, but but it was Emric was the brand of racket I was using between the ages of say maybe 20 to 24, and then I flipped to Fisher. And I used, because I finally made the switch to Graphite and Fisher made the racket called the Vacuum Pro, which you might remember Michael Stick used. And I really liked it because it was quite soft and it had feel, which reminded me of wooden rackets, which of course had a lot of give and a lot of feel. And that was your racket. Did they pay you? They did. I, I, I went there for the money. Um, you, you, you went there for the money. Yeah, yeah, because money was important. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't quite have the prize money of today. Yeah. Uh, not big money, I might say. But um, look, a lot of the rackets, it, it was very much a copy of the Kenex. I don't know if you remember yes. Kenex. It was very much a copy of that. And I, look, I wouldn't be surprised if it came out of the same factory, just with a different decal. The Emric was potentially the Kenex, allegedly. We don't know exactly yeah. for sure. I, um, Allegedly, and and you became Davis Cup captain, coach uh, first. So, so, so how does the career come to the end? Uh, my career came to the end because everybody retired me. I was a player who liked to serve and volley. So if there were a lot of single-handed backhands around on tour, I could kind of zone in on those single-handed backhands and be effective. Uh, then I started to run into the likes of you know Chang with that backhand return, and ultimately Andre Agassi and a host of Swedes. Uh, and serve volleying to their back end just became a little more difficult for me. And the court slowed down too. You know, we started went, losing matches. Yeah, they, they they retired me. You know, I went from 15 in the world. Two years later, I was 120 and it was time to go. I was also a little beaten up. I ended up with a, a crack in my femur. I had a stress fracture that actually turned into a crack 
so that, terrible injury. That took a while, yeah. So the knuckle of the femur had a big split in it and that, that took a while to overcome. And I thought about, do I try to come back? And I was like, and I also had a, an Achilles problem and I was a bit like, I'm cooked. And, you know, look, my training, if I look back upon my training, I probably beat myself up a little bit off court, you know, a lot of running, um, a lot of gym, weights, heavy weights. So I probably didn't do myself a lot of favours in terms of longevity. Did you like being a pro player? Oh, mate, I loved it. I loved, loved it. it. I love tennis. I love the sport. And I love the guys I travel with, like, you know, Cashy, Fitzy, Darren Kale, Brad Druitt, who's sadly no longer with us, John Alexander. You know, they're my best mates. You know, they're the guys I go and have a beer with, have a game of golf with. I just love the whole camaraderie. There was no entourages. I, can't, I couldn't bear having an entourage. Like, can you imagine having to talk to all those people? I would hate that. Uh, it was just you and the boys. It was great. And you became a coach? Yeah, I did. I actually got a surprise call from Michael Stick uh, late in his career. Um, and I made a bit of a mistake there. We, he, he was a gentleman to coach, had a great character. We parted ways after about eight months. We, were gonna, we had a handshake deal for the year. And um, I, my problem was I was trying to solve his problems through my eyes. And I didn't realize that at the time. I was a bit naive. Um, and I probably learned that as a coach better over the years to you've got to step away and put yourself in the player's shoes and try to solve the problem through their eyes. But I just want to tell a little story about Michael Stick because we had a handshake deal and we amicably agreed to part ways in around October. And he said, uh, and I was going to fly home and, and it, it wasn't working. You know, he wasn't getting the results and we both recognized that and it was all good. And Michael said, look, um, I'm going to pay you for the rest of the last quarter of the year. And I said, no, you don't have to uh, because this was always a handshake deal and we've reached this juncture. Um, I got home and the money was in my account. I'm not sure a lot of players would be doing that, you know, necessarily. He showed a lot of character there. So it was a great experience what for me a in a, in a lot a of man. ways. It was. It was tremendous. You get named Davis Cup captain. I, first of all, so Fitzy and I, um, at this point I'm doing a little bit of TV, late 90s, just dabbling, doing a little bit for Fox Sports. Roach and New, uh, Tony Roach and John Newcomb were captain coach and they decide to step down. So Fitzy and I have a bit of a chat. We're great mates. Why don't we have a crack? They're doing it in tandem. Why don't we try that? We put our proposal forward to Tennis Australia when the job became vacant. We tended. Fitzy was captain and I was coach for six years. So we got to two finals and we won one. Uh, we got to a couple of semifinals and we had a pretty good team. We had Rafter, we had Hewitt, we had Philip Cousas, we had Todd Woodbridge, Wayne Arthurs. Pretty handy team. And you guys all get along, or you got some static with Philippousis, static with Ra- no, no, good, good. Uh, Rafter, like no, no, Philippousis was. I did an interview with Sitsi Pass the other night, and Philippousis was in his box, yeah, and I, I, I roasted him, but unfortunately he left, yeah. Uh, and look, Pat Rafter is absolute gold, yeah. Uh, these we, are great. These we, are great Australian. We caught up together in November with a bunch of guys and went down not far from where we are now and played golf for two days together and sank some beers and you know, yeah, good guys. You guys are Davis Cuppers. That's a, that's a that's an important thing here. It Australia. is it yeah. is important. And I look, I'm a little bit sad that the format has changed. I understand all of the dynamics and the reasons for it, but you know that whole home and away thing for Australians was pretty special. And best of five sets was pretty special. And we don't have that anymore. So I I I miss that. Um, are, are your sources telling you that it's coming back? Do we know anything yet? And I yet? I don't know. I did hear that. Um, Cosmos, which was the big sponsor right. for the ITF and the right. Davis Cup, have kind of stepped away. That after, was Gerard PK's group. After they, they're, they're out. Yeah. They're out. So we will see. So I think we will see. Then maybe there's a time to make get you know, the wiser heads in tennis to get together and make it happen. 
Let's move into the fourth set. Uh, this is the 10 ball scramble. I say it, you say what comes in your mind. First thing. Bing. Ready? Favorite tournament? China. Always, really? Yes? 100%? Now, as a player, probably Wimbledon. Favorite city? I'm going to say, as a player or now? Listen, man. It's 10 ball scramble. You got to okay. just say it. Well, favorite city is Sydney. That's it. That's it, Sydney. Second favorite city. Paris. The best player party. Um best player party. Uh we had a I had a pretty wild play. We well, Indianapolis, small tournament, but it was gonna be my last tournament. And I'll never forget that player party because yeah, I You had a good time. it, It was a big one, yeah. Your favorite your favorite player growing up. Uh, I idolized Borg as a youngster, Bjorn Borg. Your favorite player now, is there someone you loved? Um, Rafa. Rafa. Um, what do you, what can you tell us about medical timeouts? Hate them. They should, well. They're being abused. I hate the equipment timeouts and (laughs) Holger Rune twisted his ankle today. That was necessary, but I, I feel at times it's abused, so I'm not a fan. Best doubles player you ever John McEnroe. I don't you don't even have to finish that question. Sorry, I thought you said with. Against? With and against. Okay, against John McEnroe. With. And, and with the best doubles player I played with, probably Peter Corder one day. We won New Haven together and he was hot that week and it was like, whoa, <laughs> he was scary. Peter Corder, people don't realize what a talented uh, genius oh, he Oh, mate, when he, when he caught fire. When he caught fire. He just hit winners from everywhere. Yeah. Le- you've already said it, but big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. Is the big entourage is a um, intrinsic problem that's growing? What I don't like about the big entourage is, well, first of all, I don't know how I would have coped, you know, because everybody wants a piece of your time. And when you play on tour, you know, the matches are pretty intense. You need downtime. Lean and mean, I like. But what I'm also seeing is players really reliant on the entourage, but then turning on them in the match situation and, you know, ranting and raving and gesticulating and abusing their team and I uh, you can't uh, you, you'll never be able to explain that one to me how that works let's move into the fifth and final set this is the king of the court if you can make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket no aggravation what would it be okay basically forget about lets on the serve just play them um, if you throw the ball up to serve it you play the let play the let on the serve as we do in the general rally I would have I wouldn't have a warm up players would just meet at the net toss the coin and get to it I would not allow equipment changes. If you want to change your shirt, just do it on court. And you said you can't catch the toss. Did you just say that? Yeah, you can't catch the toss. Like once you throw it up, it's in play. I'm all for just speeding up the game just that little bit. You know, I, I've covered a couple of matches where guys took, basically took a bag with them and came back 10 minutes later after the third set with a, with a whole new outfit on. Like it hasn't even been that hot. Like just change your shirt on court. If you need to change your shoes, go right ahead. If there's something more dramatic happen, yes, but not as a, a general acceptable rule that you can go and have a massive equipment change. Keep it fast. Keep it moving. Get it. Keep it moving. Yeah. Keep We've, it grooving. Yeah. Yep. And same with those medical timeouts. I mean, maybe you just got to be treated within the set time or the game time. It's at end change. But yeah, just just keep moving. It's a bit like boxing. You know, if you get injured in boxing, you can't call timeout, can you? You got to find a way to uh, get to your chair. Maybe it's a bit like that in tennis. Wally Masur, what a pleasure this was. I feel like this was a master class in Australian tennis. Um, and what a better, what no better place to do that is than here. Thanks for your time. Good on you, Craig. Um, Wally Masur, you are released. Have a great rest of your tournament. We'll see you down the road.
Cheers. Huge thank you to Wally Masur. And thank you to Deodora. See them at Deodora.com. And be on the lookout as there will be more to come. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.